Well, if you have a Bible, you can open to Luke 22. That's where we're going to be this morning. Glad to be back in Luke. And uh, we'll be picking things up in verse 14. Uh, We could say the Christian life is one that is always live in the past, the present, and the future. Because in one sense, what we do as believers every day is we remember who God is and we remember what God has done. And yet every day when we wake up, we want to be in a relationship with God and commune with Him in the present. And then we also anticipate what He is going to do in the future. So remembrance and communion and anticipation, right? We, we are always doing these things as Christians. We have a life where we look back and we remember what the Lord has done, where we presently worship Him, and where we look forward to what He is going to do. We recall His past faithfulness, we feast on the daily bread of God, and we trust in the future faithfulness of God. Well, our passage this morning captures this aspect of the Christian life where we are always looking back and presently communing with God and looking forward. And it does it maybe more than any other because we have arrived at uh, the Last Supper, which is also the first Lord's Supper. And in the Supper, as we talk about the body and the blood, as we talk about the bread and the cup, we are talking about remembrance and communion and anticipation. It's been a few weeks since we were in Luke, so just a little review of what's going on. Uh, It is Thursday of Holy Week. Okay, so Jesus has cleansed the temple, he has held court in the temple and taught, he has taught his disciples on the side of the Mount of Olives, and now we're really entering into uh, the, the, the final portion of the Holy Week narrative. There's not a lot of chunks of teaching left in Luke, like there are these little brief moments of teaching we could pull out, and we will, and, and, and go through, and we can see that Jesus is still giving truth to his disciples on the way to the cross, but for the most part, from here to the end of the of the book of Luke, we're dealing with the story, we're dealing with narrative, we're dealing with the story of the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord Jesus. The last time we were in Luke together, Pastor David preached from Luke 22, 1 through 13, and we saw that a plot to kill Jesus was being put together by the chief priests and the scribes, and they had to be very careful with this plot. They feared that if they moved too fast, uh, the people would react sharply to them because the people love Jesus. Like Jesus is very popular. Uh, even here on Thursday of Holy Week, Jesus still holds the favor of the people. So if they were to make a move in the wrong way, then they could find themselves on the receiving end, not only the wrath of the people, but the wrath of Rome for stirring the people up. That's all Rome really cared about, just keep the peace. But they found their in. Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, and Judas gets in on the plot of the priests and the scribes. And all it took was a payment of 30 pieces of silver. And so this brings us to Thursday, to Peter and John preparing the Passover meal, And to the Last Supper, and I'll read from verse 7 for the sake of context. Luke 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. 
And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Father, the testimonies of your word are sure, and we need them. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not have hearts that are like the hard path where the seed of the gospel just bounces off, and I pray we would not have hearts that have rocky soil where we immediately receive the word with joy and then it is uh, burnt away by suffering and persecution. I pray we would not have hearts that have thorny soil where we receive the word and then it's choked out by sin and a love for the world. God, give us the hearts that would produce fruit this morning, that we would hear your word and that your word would produce fruit in us uh, to different uh, varying degrees, Lord, according to your will and your way. So we pray that you would work through the preaching of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So for the sake of context, I read down through verse 23, but this morning we'll actually stop at verse 20, uh, and we'll pick up at verse 21 uh, next week. We'll just focus on the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper this morning, and we need to understand the context that it's taking place in, so let's actually back up and let's talk about the Passover. We know from Luke 22, verse 7, that the final meal Jesus has with his disciples takes place on the Thursday of Holy Week. Because when Luke says the, quote, day of unleavened bread, the date is fixed. The Passover lamb is to be slain on the 14th of the month between 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. And at 6 p.m., you know, for us, midnight is when the new day begins. But for the Jewish people, at 6 p.m., the new day begins. So at 6 p.m., the new day began and the Feast of Unleavened Bread began. We know for sure that Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples on Passover. And this should not be a surprise because this is what Jesus did his entire life. He was a perfect Jewish man, so he kept the law. He knows that this isn't just his final Passover. He knows it's the last time the Passover meal would be eaten by any Jewish person before he fulfills the ceremony itself with his own death. The Passover was established by God in order for his people to remember the deliverance that they had from Egypt so that they would not grow forgetful as the people of God are, are prone to do. So if you go back to Exodus 11... You see the culmination of the plagues that God has sent to Egypt to warn Pharaoh that he must release God's people from slavery. Exodus 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people. 
that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and for gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. The final plague was clearly the worst of them all. God sends the angel of death, and the firstborn child of every Egyptian household will die under his judgment for the way that the people of Israel had treated God's firstborn. God's firstborn is the nation of Israel. So for the way that Pharaoh had treated the nation of Israel, this judgment is coming down upon the firstborn sons of every Egyptian household. Keep going to Exodus 12, verse 7. Then they shall take, and this is talking about what the Jewish people would do, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with the unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it uh, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So this memorial meal and this feast to celebrate the deliverance of God's people was to be carried on throughout the generations of Israel according to God's commands. And as the years went on, it was. The rabbis added on extra ceremonial rites to the feast, but it carried on its meaning of remembering what God had done. We know from history what the scene in Jerusalem would have been like on this particular Passover when Jesus and his disciples are there to worship. Huge crowds would descend on Jerusalem. Usually around 200,000 people would come to Jerusalem in order to keep the law and to keep the feast. It was customary that no Jewish person would charge another Jewish person if they were in town for the Passover. So if, if you were coming in town, it wasn't right for me to charge you rent for a few nights so you could come and worship, right? So what would happen is you'd stay in my house for free. However, on your way out, you would gift me the hide of the Passover lamb for me to be able to keep and to use. And so that is how people paid for their lodging while they were in town. They would pay with the hides of the sacrificed sheep. The merchants would descend on Jerusalem looking for a big payday as they sold their goods to the pilgrim worshipers. But the most important purchase that any Jewish person would make, of course, is the purchase of the sacrificial lamb. Everybody didn't go and buy their own lamb. That would get pretty hectic. So people would uh, come together in groups of ten. 
do you want to come over to my house? You want to be one of my ten, right? And everybody would throw money in together. They would buy the sacrificial lamb, and then they would take the Passover meal and, and keep it together. Now, even with people getting together in groups of ten, there were a lot of Jewish people there, and there were a lot of sheep to be killed. And this took place in a ceremony. You didn't take it upon yourself to take your sheep out in a back alley somewhere and just kill it on your own, right? There had to be a priest there. These things had to be done according to the law. On normal days, if you went to the temple, there would have been one division of priests there to handle the sacrifices. But on the Passover, when you showed up, there were 24 divisions of priests there to handle the sacrifices. In the morning, the priests would burn the leaven that was ceremonially collected from the night before. They would be done with that by noon, and at 3 p.m., the ritual slaughtering would get underway. The whole city would know that the slaughtering was happening because the priest would blow the shofar at 3 p.m., and everybody would know, it's time. It's time for the Passover lambs to die. The worshipers would approach two long lines. The 24 divisions of priests would be lined up in two very long lines, and the worshipers would come in with their sheep. The priest held these silver and gold basins. And so you would approach the priest with the silver and the gold basin, and you would lift up the the neck of your sheep, and you would kill it. And the priest would catch the blood. And then the worshiper would leave the temple with the slain lamb and the skin of the slain lamb, which would probably be paid to someone for staying in their home if you were from out of town. They would leave with the slain lamb and the skin draped on their shoulders as they headed back to prepare the meal for the night. That night, the Passover meal would commence at 6 p.m. Everybody at the meal would be dressed in white. They would recline at the table. The guests reclined as they ate because they were no longer slaves, and so you could eat in peace. The meal had bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of slavery, the stewed fruit represented the bricks of Egypt with their color. The roasted lamb, of course, represents the Passover lamb whose blood was painted on the doorpost so that the angel of death would see death has already touched this home and would pass over the home. And the celebration would go late into the night. Once they finished the Passover meal, there were two groups of people. There were the people who would spew out into the streets and party all night long because God's forgiven our sins and we're freed from Egypt and let's celebrate. And then there were the really pious people who would bypass the partiers and they would go down to the temple and they would wait for midnight to come. And as soon as the temple gates opened at midnight, they would go in and they would worship. So it's, that's the scene. That's the context. That's what's going on. And in the midst of that, Jesus says to Peter and John, go and prepare the Passover meal for the disciples. And Jesus has a plan. They are to go into Jerusalem and find a man carrying a jar of water. Would not be hard to find. You're you're thinking, all of Jerusalem, you're looking for one guy. I talked about where's Waldo last week. It's like, how do you find this one guy? But men really didn't care jars of water. That was a job that a woman did. And so if you saw a man carrying a jar of water, that would be very abnormal. So they're looking for something abnormal. And so they see this man carrying this water. They would follow that man into a house, speak to the master of the house, let them know Jesus sent them, and then that master should show them a guest room that is furnished probably with three uh, couches for them to recline on as they ate, and that is where Peter and John are to prepare the Passover meal. Did Peter and John take a lamb down to the temple that day, uh, walk up to the priest, slay the thing, have the blood be caught in the basin, throw it over their shoulder and head back? Or was that taken care of by the master of the house? We really don't know. 
What we do know is that Jesus had clearly prearranged all of this with the homeowner. And it's likely that he did it for the purposes of counterintelligence. Like, Jesus knows that Judas is, is um, not on the good, right? He knows that Judas has turned heel here. He knows that Judas uh, has this intention in his heart to betray him, that Satan has entered uh, Judas's life. And so in light of that, he has Peter and John handle this covertly according to his plan, because if not, Judas could tip off the authorities, and Jesus could be robbed of this time with his disciples and the institution of the Lord's Supper, which is incredibly important. And you can see in verse 15, he earnestly desired to eat this meal with them before he went to the cross. This was vital for Jesus. This was important for Jesus. And he wasn't going to let Judas's uh, new friends from the synagogue and the temple come down and crash the party. And so the time for the Passover arrives, and in verse 14 you see Jesus is reclining at table with the apostles. This is about as formal of a dinner setting as you're going to find in the first century, all right? This is the Passover, and we should have a picture we can throw up on the screen here, and I'm going to throw it up there so we can just get Da Vinci out of our mind, all right? Just get his Last Supper out of your mind, it didn't look like that. They look weird in the photo anyways. It's just not what it looked like, okay? This is much more like what it would have looked like. Um, they would have uh, been reclining on their, their elbows or their hands, their feet, their filthy feet away from the table, right? Uh, keeping them away from the food. And it would have been Jesus probably right there in the center. This is just a random first century meal, so it's not meant to depict the Last Supper. But uh, Jesus would have been right there in the center at the head of the table as the one leading it. And they all would have been around them. Um, and so this is a first century Passover meal. It would begin with the host pronouncing a blessing over a cup of red wine. I know we're Baptists, but we'll survive, all right? It was real wine, and they passed it to the others. After the first cup, bitter herbs were dipped in the stewed fruit, and they were eaten. And then a message about the Passover would be taught. After the message, the guests would sing from the Hallel, which was Psalms 113 to 118. So they would start by singing 113 or 113 and 114. Then a second cup was passed. After the second cup was passed, the hosts would break the unleavened bread and pass it around. Then the actual meal was eaten, the lamb. Then a third cup was passed around, and then the rest of the Hallel was sung. And then the fourth cup, which was about looking forward to the kingdom to come, was drunk right before everybody left. Luke is the only gospel writer that tells us that a cup is drunk before the meal. And so you see that in verse 17. Surely this is that initial cup of red wine, the cup of blessing. And they pass it around and they drink it. This cup emphasized community. It emphasized family. It emphasized, hey, we all have the faith of Abraham and we are all united by that faith and we all trust God together. And for the disciples, it also meant that they began this meal in love and in fellowship. That their love for Christ and that Christ's Lord lordship over them has made them friends and has made them brothers and the way the next 36 hours of their lives are going to play out the next 48 hours of their lives are going to play out them being friends and brothers is going to be really really important if we assume that jesus followed the standard outline for the passover meal 
then we would assume that Luke leaves out the dipping of the herbs and the singing of the songs that would have taken place before the breaking of the unleavened bread. Did Jesus do those things? Did he not do those things with his disciples? Was this a shortened new version for the new covenant? It's really neither here nor there. So we're just going to focus on what Luke definitely tells us happened. And what he tells us is that in verse 19, Jesus takes the unleavened bread. He gives thanks, he breaks it, and he gives it to his disciples. And he says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, Christians do not agree on what this means, okay? Um, Roman Catholics say that Jesus is telling his disciples that as they keep this meal going forward, the unleavened bread will actually transubstantiate into the body of Christ, Meaning that the, the, the bread actually becomes his body. Now, if you were to taste it, it would not be evident to your senses. If you were to sniff it, it wouldn't be evident to your senses. Uh, looking at it, it's not evident to your senses. It just looks like bread to you. But they would say that when he says, this is my body, which is given for you, he's saying that it actually turns into his body. So that is called transubstantiation. All right? Lutherans follow in Martin Luther's footsteps and say the presence of Christ is with the bread. It, it doesn't transubstantiate into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ, but the presence of Christ is with the bread, and they call this consubstantiation. It's pretty easy to dismiss transubstantiation just by reading the Bible, all right? Do you think that as Jesus sat there in his human body and he held up a piece of bread and he said, this is my body? That his disciples went, oh, he means the bread is going to transform into his flesh. Or do you think they went, he's talking symbolically? They would have understand this to be symbolic language from Jesus. Just like when he called himself the door, they went, oh, he's really a door, you know? Or when he compared himself to a mother hen, they didn't go, you know, I think Jesus, is, he might be a hen, right? They didn't do that. They knew he's using figurative language to get a point across, and he's doing the same here. As far as consubstantiation goes, I just don't see the scriptural basis for it. I, I don't see any New Testament passages telling us that the presence of, of God is somehow dwelling in the elements of the Lord's Supper. And I think Paul had a perfect opportunity to say that in 1 Corinthians 11 as he talks about how serious the meal is if that was a part of the seriousness. That the Spirit of Christ is, is somehow with the bread and the cup, I think he would have let us know. So what we understand Jesus to mean here is that the unleavened bread, which is used to symbolize the hasty exit from Egypt, now symbolizes the body of Christ, which is about to be torn for God's people. So when Jesus says, this is my body, the word is means represents. He's saying, this represents my body, which is for you. And in verse 20, he says, this cup that is poured out for you is, again, represents, right? Represents the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant is sealed with the blood of Christ. The first covenant was also sealed with blood. Exodus 24. And he sent young men to the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant 
and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So the first covenant, the law, is sealed with blood. Similarly, the new covenant is inaugurated with blood. Jeremiah prophesied about this new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So over 400 years before Jesus has this meal with his disciples, Jeremiah promised that God would bring about a new covenant that would be different from the law. Because now God's law will not be in a book, but it will be on our hearts, and God will be our God, and we will be his people, and our sins will be forgiven, and our sins will be remembered no more. How can our sins be forgiven, and how can we have an intimate relationship with God and be his people, and how can his very laws be engraved on our hearts? It's only by the shed blood of Christ. Our sins can only be forgiven if our sins are paid for, and that's what Jesus did when he suffered at Calvary. He paid for our sins. He bore God's wrath for you. He bore God's wrath for me. He drank the cup of God's wrath that we should have drank so that now we can drink the cup of the new covenant. So you can see how the shed blood of Christ inaugurates the new covenant, and that's why he says, the new covenant in my blood. And so again, we reject the idea that the blood is somehow becoming the actual blood of Christ, or that the presence of Christ is dwelling in the blood. Instead, we understand that the cup is representative of the fact that the new covenant is sealed with the shed blood of Jesus. And so now, when we come together... We are to eat the bread and drink the cup in the same manner. The Apostle Paul confirmed that the instructions of Jesus are permanent for the New Testament church when he writes to the Corinthians 20 years later and he says, For I received from the Lord Jesus what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And that's what the church has been doing ever since. Not without dispute, right? Not without differences. But we would say that a key aspect of Christian worship over the last 2,000 years is acting out the final meal of Christ in the way that he told us to. And this is where we see the threefold focus of the Christian life in the act of taking the Lord's Supper. In one sense, when we take the Lord's Supper, we take the Lord's Supper and we remember. So if you're taking notes, that would be a good one to write down. We take the Lord's Supper and we remember. Jesus says in verse 19, do this in remembrance of me. It's what we need as a forgetful people. It's what we need as a people prone to wander. 
and, and, and prone to have spiritual amnesia when it comes to the saving acts of God that have brought us safe thus far. The Israelites were no different. In fact, that is a big reason as to why God gave them the Passover. If you go back to those initial Genesis, or, uh, Exodus 11 and 12 instructions, you can see that remembrance is emphasized by the Lord as the instructions are given. Exodus 12, 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. We understand as Americans the concept of a memorial day because we have our own memorial day, right? At the end of May every year, we have this day that we set aside and we say, we don't want to forget. We don't want to forget that while we are free, this freedom was paid for by uh, the lives of so many men and women who served our country. We remember the sacrifice that was made for us to have these rights and for us to have these freedoms. We don't want to forget it. Therefore, we have this day we set aside and we say, all right, let's be intentional about remembering. God wanted his people to be intentional about remembering what he has done. The Jewish people were to remember the exodus, lest they forget and and they failed to give God the glory that he should receive. So this is a big part of what we do. When we come together to eat the Lord's Supper, Jesus instituted the ordinance so that we could, as a church, look back and remember that his body was torn and that his blood was spilt. It's a reminder to us that our salvation is free, but it was not free for Jesus. That it cost him his life. And that remembrance should cause us to revere Him, to love Him, to fear Him. And His past faithfulness to us through the cross should spur us on to be obedient. We should be compelled to want to serve Him with everything we have. And so when you come in here next week and you take the Lord's Supper, which we will next week as a church, when you come in here next week to take the Lord's Supper, part of what you do is going to be looking back and remembering but it won't be all that you do. Sometimes the Lord's Supper is called communion, which is not a wrong thing to call it. And that is because when we come to the table, we are presently communing with the Lord. So we can say that just like we take the Lord's Supper and remember, we take the Lord's Supper and commune. What takes place when the deacons come by with that tray and they hand you that little cup, all right? It's got that little piece of bread, that little square of bread in it, and it's got the, the grape juice in it, all right? When, when, when they hand that to you, a very spiritual moment is taking place. It is not meant to be ho-hum. And I think this is where we got to be kind of careful as Baptists because we go, hey, it's Memorial, man, all right? There, that, that bread and, and, and that juice is purely representative, okay? Well, yes... We definitely say that, but it doesn't mean that what's taking place at that table is not supremely spiritual. And so while I'm not ashamed of the doctrine that I believe I understand from the Scriptures regarding how we take the Lord's Supper, I don't want that doctrine to lead me into spiritual coldness. I don't want to be like the Ephesians that we learned about this past Wednesday night, who were so good at discerning and had so much right doctrine, but they didn't love the Lord in their hearts, right? We don't want that to be our attitude as we come to the table. It's just bread and juice, throw it down, move on to the sermon. It can't be that way. 
We know from Paul's warnings in 1 Corinthians 11, the table is spiritual and the table is serious. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. I mean, I don't know if that causes you to want to just like press the pause button before you get up here and take the Lord's Supper next week, but it should, right, to make us go, wait a second. People are getting sick and dying because they're mishandling the way they're taking the Lord's Supper. Judgment is falling down upon them because of the way that they're handling the Lord's Supper. I would say that it's a spiritual exercise then that has spiritual ramifications if we do not approach it spiritually right. I would argue the Lord's Supper is actually a means of grace to us. Now, here's what I, what I mean and what I don't mean, okay? I don't mean to say that the Lord's Supper is saving grace. Of course not, right? Taking the Lord's Supper in no way can earn you favor with God, okay? The only favor we have with God comes from the work that Jesus did on the cross by dying for us and resurrecting to defeat our sin and to defeat our death, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the grace God pours out on you every day as a Christian, right? Just as a believer who is saved by the blood of Christ, you have grace coming to you from God the Father, through Christ the Son, by the Holy Spirit, through the ordinary means that he has ordained. So, for example, God has ordained that he would pour out his love and his favor on you through his word. That every day when you as a believer open up the word of God and you sit down to meet with God in his word, that he's pouring out his love and favor upon you through his word. Or that when you get down on your knees and you pray to God and you approach him with boldness because the blood of Christ enables you to do so, that in prayer he's pouring out his love and his grace upon you. And I think we should certainly include the ordinances that he has given us in the church, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, as ways in which God is determined to pour his grace out on his people. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are the ways that you and I see the gospel in worship. Baptism happens when people are converted. In a lot of ways, it's the first sermon that we preach as Christians. But with the Lord's Supper, there's this repeated practice we see over and over. Baptism is, is a one-time thing, but with the Lord's Supper, we do that again and again and again. And every time we take it, we are preaching a sermon. We are saying something about the Lord. We are saying something about His gospel, and we are receiving His grace. And that's why we call it communion. When we come to the table, we commune with God. We commune with God on His terms dictated by His Son. And when we come with our sin confessed, when we come with a broken and contrite heart, and we eat the bread and we drink from the cup, we're receiving God's love and favor as we commune with Him. And so, we would say, absolutely, the Lord's Supper is memorial, but we would say, don't forget to commune as you remember. Yes, it is memorial. Yes, it is symbolic. But as you use the symbols to remember, don't forget to commune with God presently and to receive his grace. Because when we leave that table, we are refreshed and we are strengthened to hold fast to him again by the grace that he gives us. So finally, 
we would say Lord's Supper is about remembrance and communion, but there's also this future aspect to it. So we look back and we presently commune with God, but we also look forward and we anticipate. So uh, lastly, we take the Lord's Supper and anticipate. If you look back at the passage, you can see that Jesus is anticipating even as he institutes the ordinance of the supper. Verse 16, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then in verse 18 he says, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. What the anticipation of Christ teaches us is that while his blood inaugurated the new covenant, his return will consummate it. So let me say that again. His blood inaugurated the new covenant. It sealed it, but it's his return that consummates it. And the book of Revelation tells us about a time, a time that is coming when Jesus will drink of the vine with us again. And I believe this is the time that Jesus is speaking of in Luke 22, in verse 16 and in verse 18, when he says that from now on he's not going to drink of the fruit of vine until the kingdom of God comes. He's looking forward to this moment. Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. The time is coming, and and church, it may not be far away, when the Lord will return, and he will gather his people from the graves and from the four corners of the earth, and the kingdom of God will be consummated with a long awaited meal isn't that what you do after a marriage is consummated right you get together and you have a big meal like for katie and i um if you live in powhatan okay you get married at the baptist church if you're baptist but you don't have the reception at the baptist church because you can't dance there so you go down to the methodist church and then you dance at the methodist church So that's what my sister-in-law and her husband did, and that's what Katie and I did, okay? We did the exact same thing. So we got married at Red Lane Baptist Church, and everybody went down to the Methodist Church and ate chicken and danced. So that was, uh, that was what we did. We celebrated the fact that this marriage, I mean, we had a long, we had a long engagement, all right? Um, I was waiting on her to, to graduate college. I couldn't wait the whole time. I waited until at least she was a senior. But uh, we had like a, almost a two-year engagement. It went on and on and on. We were both so ready for it to end. So when it did, we had this big meal to celebrate. It's the same thing that's going to happen. The kingdom of God will be consummated when the Lamb returns, and there will be a giant meal to celebrate. And we will all sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we will eat And we will drink with him again. But as Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 11, until that day comes, every time we take this meal, every time we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the death of the Lord. And this is why I say that your baptism might be the first sermon you preach, but the Lord's Supper is like a sermon that you preach again and again and again. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
And then the last three words Paul says in that verse, until he comes. Because once he comes, we get the marriage supper. We get to sit down in his presence and we get to eat together. The band's going to come back up, and as they come back up to lead us in this final song, I'm going to challenge you this week to really think about this threefold focus of the Lord's Supper, that we remember the faithfulness of God and that we commune with his grace as we come to the table and we anticipate his coming as we eat uh, the bread and we drink the cup. Next week, our K-5 through kids will be in with us. We do that on Lord's Supper Sundays. I know that's not always an easy day for some of you who own those children, all right? I, I get it. Um, I have little ones too, so you are not alone in this. I, I'm not trying to put something on you that I don't deal with. There's a reason we do that. There's a very, very, very practical reason of giving our kids' praise uh, folks a break. We don't say enough about our kids' praise and we praise uh, workers. They're amazing, aren't they? Um, just absolutely amazing people. You can clap for them all day long. Um, so we love those folks. But it's not just about giving them a break. We want our kids in here because we want to take the Lord's Supper and then say to our children, this is what we're doing right now. And for some of our kids who don't know the Lord yet, we say to them, you know, like to my, my middle son, he's not, he's not a believer just yet. We're praying for him. I'll turn to, you know, to, we can turn to him and we can say to him, your brother's doing this. You're not doing this yet, but let me explain to you what's happening here. We're remembering what God did when he sent his son to come and save us by dying on the cross. And right now, because he died on the cross for us, we get to commune with him and worship him with no fear that he's going to reject us. And we're looking forward to this day when he's going to come back and squash out all evil. And so the Lord's Supper is this opportunity for us to pass the gospel down to the next generation and to help them understand the same way the Passover meal did for the Jewish children. And so I want to challenge you with that. Don't look at next week, to, to, to our parents here who have littles, um, don't look at next week and say, oh, it's that week where they're in there. Look at it and go, this is an opportunity for me to teach the gospel to my kids and to show them what worship looks like. I also want to challenge um, all of us as a church to keep the Lord's Supper on our mind all week. Don't wait till you walk in here at 10 a.m. next week to search your heart and examine yourself as to whether or not you should approach the table. Spend the whole week preparing your heart and your mind to take the Lord's Supper, to come and to commune, to come and to anticipate, to come and remember. Spend time in the Word. Spend time in prayer. Ask God to search your heart and to to reveal any wicked way that might be in you so that you can repent of your sin and come to the table with a heart ready to receive the grace of Christ, a heart ready to look back and a heart ready to look forward. Let's pray together now.